What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here. What's going on in pop culture right now? Got kind of a light pod this week. The calm before the storm. The fall is looking very busy, but we're not quite there yet. Gonna talk about new music from Vic Mensa and Nas, his sixth album in the last three years, capping off this crazy run. Exciting. Gonna talk Bottoms, the high school comedy film from Alex Eggleman with Rachel Sennett that I've been mean to get to, finally got to it. Of course, Dumb Money, the GameStop stock saga film is out. And also HBO's Wing Time, season two. So make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. Follow the best of the 2023 Spotify playlist for the best songs of the year, updated weekly. See the links below. Get all that. And yeah, let's do it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Magic 3, the latest album from Nas and Hit Boy, their sixth collaboration since 2020, capping off the Magic trilogy, following, of course, the King's Disease trilogy. I think people know it by now because, of course, Magic 2 just came out a few months ago. But this Nas run has just been so prolific, this run with Hit Boy. And, of course, people know, you know, getting Nas the first Grammy win of his career for best rap album on the uh, King's Disease side of this run, really invigorating, you know, one of the best MCs of all time following a true creative malaise, you know, back in 2018, the ill-fated Nasir album that he made with Kanye, you know, I mean, that feels like such a distant memory after the six albums we've got. And, you know, Nas capping that off, releasing Magic 3 Thursday night on his 50th birthday. And very exciting. You know, I think um, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of hype, a lot of excitement about this run and, and, and the run's conclusion, you know, this year. And then one thing, it's probably good that like Nas and Hit Boy are like capping it off and calling it where they are because, again, Nas is 50. We don't have much of a track record for rappers staying this active. Of course, he sounds genuinely very refreshed, very energetic, very fun on the mic. I'm sure he could have kept it going, but, you know, all good things come to an end. Sound like a good good as place as any. Six albums, three years. It's wild. Um, I think, you know, all, all the hype, right, about, like, Nas and whether this boasts your his standing in your, you know, rap pantheon and things. I don't know. I feel like that standing was pretty much secure before any of this happened, if we're being honest, you know, with Illmatic and Stillmatic, and it was written and everything, of course, in the 90s. However, I do think this run boosts Hit Boy's standing a little bit, or at least it's, it's perhaps is serving as like a retrospective for like how we think about Hit Boy. I would say that this six-album, three-year run, Hit Boy is done with Nas, is actually probably the signature achievement of Hit Boy's career as a hip-hop producer. You know, I, I think just kind of the totality of this and the general excitement and reception to this whole run probably puts it above his work with good music. And, and you know, Kanye back, you know, 10, 10 plus years ago. I know that sounds a little blasphemous, but I think in terms of what stood the test of time, I think it's a conversation now. It's interesting. You know, obviously, this is the second most significant thing, at the very least, that Hit Boy's done after everything he did with Kanye when he really kind of came into his own. So, either way, very exciting. And I think Magic 3, it doesn't really do anything we haven't got before with this run. 
but I think that's okay. Also, then again, probably a sign of it's probably time to stop. Um, in a sense, these albums are kind of low stakes, where like they're they're fun. They're fully formed, of course, full length. You know, this one's fifteen songs, forty six minutes. But again, like I think just like the the energy that Nas brings, he sounds fresh. Even if I think lyrically, he can kind of fluctuate beyond having like a true story to tell on some of these songs versus just kind of flexing. Obviously, Nas is such a competent rapper, such a compelling rapper with his voice, with his uh, you know flow. He's always just so comp- competent and good on the mic that it always sounds good that I don't really care if, you know, sometimes it's just kind of flexing. I don't mind hearing old man flexing. It's pretty good, you know? Um, and Hip Boy, you know, there are songs where like, he will really shine. There'll be songs where there's like multiple beat switch-ups or like the vibe of the song will like totally switch and Nas and him have such good chemistry at this point that Nas will then like switch up his flow and match the switch up on the beat. Those are probably the, the best moments on this. I think of a song like track two, uh, Tisk, TSK, um, the beat switch with the flow switch on that song, I think is great fire song in general. Love the keys. I'm not sure if I understand what Nas means by the get Trump's vote line, but definitely caught my ear. Um, I love this feeling track four. I think the drum line is awesome on that. Nas's flow really matches that one. Um, Never die. The Wayne verse is okay. Definitely didn't need it, which is my general feeling about Wayne verses these days. But it actually didn't get in the way as much as I would have expected. Um, yeah, based on true events, based on true events, part two, probably the best like storytelling bag Nas gives you on the album here. You know, um, the track after that, sitting with my thoughts. You have the brief Nipsey Hustle s- sample. I think the beginning of that's really strong. Blue Bentley. I think this is just the best banger on the on the uh, on the album on Magic Three. Uh, just straight flexing from Nas. It just sounds awesome. I just, I'm, I'm just here for this kind of flow all the time. These kind of like distorted horns on there. Love it. Uh, you get the Coil Array line from Nas where he's like, Koi said, girls are players too. And Nas is therefore like, therefore I will also continue to be a player. It's like, okay, I guess. It's kind of not the spirit of what a woman means when they say something like that, but whatever. Um... <laughs> The last, I mean, Japanese Soul Bar, uh, the second to last track, great production from Hip Boy. Speechless Part 2, pretty interesting. I believe this is a song where Nas actually gets into, like, AI, like, replicating, like, artist's work and what that means for, like, creativity and art. Interesting to hear from that. Obviously very topical, but also pretty self-aware from Nas. I like that. And the last song, 1-800-Nas and Hit, that's a really, I think, warm outro shout-out song. You know, Nas and Hit, like, acknowledging this run, shouting out everyone, you know, like, the engineers, the mixers, everyone involved in making everything happen. Obviously not a song you would revisit, but it felt like a really fitting closer for everything and just felt just happy and gracious, which was nice to hear. I think the only song that I, like, I didn't quite get behind would be Pretty Young Girl, just because Nas just turned 50. (laughs) Like, uh, the sentiment of this is, like, I don't know, like, how young we talking here, my guy? You know, what's a what's what state your age, at least a little bit here, um, a little bit off putting, I'll say. But overall, like, un- unsurprisingly, Nas goes hard, Hit Boy, even if like Nas and Hit Boy may not be like super consistent on really any of these albums, at least the last few, 
they just give you like a high floor with all the music so that when they do do really interesting things, whether it's flow switch-ups, whether it's really introspective bars, whether it's engaging beats that then switch and become something completely else the second half of the song, whatever it might be, it's just kind of raising that floor and it's elevating, it's engaging music. And what more can you really ask for from a rapper who just turned 50, you know? So shout out Nas and Hit Boy, great run. Uh, hard to really ask for anything else. Be curious what's next for Nas, right? Six albums, three years. He didn't have much trouble making these by the sound of it. You know, I guess COVID in- impacted the uh, the quickness of recording in a certain sense, but I wonder how long he'll uh, wait to release something else, whether he'll just try and latch on to another producer and find some other inspiration, who's to say? But I'm sure he's earned uh, a break if he wants it. We'll see. But let me know, how'd you feel about Nas and Hit Boys Magic 3. How'd you feel about this whole run? You know, now that it's over, six albums, three years. How do you feel about it? How do you think about it now versus how you thought about it in the beginning? And for more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up, my nostalgia? Dave here with a review of Vic Mensa's second studio album, Victor. Vic, people know him, Chicago rapper, been around a minute. I was surprised to see this actually only his second album, technically, he's got a few mixtapes, bunch of EPs. He's been very prolific, even if technically this is his first full-length album since the autobiography back in 2017. Still signed the Rock Nation, and I've been a fan of Vic, you know, I think since most people became aware of him, you know, way back when he's part of Kids These Days with Donnie Trumpet, you know, Nico Segal. Um, and, you know, since then, obviously, it's it's been a challenging thing to be a fan of Vic Mensa. Of course, he's gotten some social media beefs, but even just kind of ignoring any of that, you know, stuff doesn't really matter. Musically, he's just been such a up-and-down artist. He's done, I think, made really compelling music. At the very least, one-off singles off projects are, like, really interesting and fun to revisit. And he's just mixed that, interspersed that, which is really difficult to take projects. I'm thinking of stuff like 93 Punks, the recent project Vino Valentino don't care for that but you know before that 2020 2021 v tape and i tape i thought were really inspired hooligans not nearly as good but the manuscript there's a lot going on autobiography pretty solid he's so up and down and you know i think with victor um not that there was probably a lot of hype for this i think vic is despite still being on the rock he's not you know, like super mainstream these days, kind of, I guess he's kind of going in the same direction as Chance the Rapper. We'll talk more about that later. But, you know, this album, it it definitely feels like a full-length album with like a full, it's like a full body of work type thing. And I think it's pretty solid. I think there's just a little something missing sometimes from Vic. I don't know. Like, I really love when he does the the house thing. Like Down on My Luck, this big breakout single from way back. Love that. And you get something like that on this with the bonus track, East Side Girl featuring Ty Dolla Sign. Kind of like a, like a hip house summary song. You know, Vic singing on it, kind of crooning alongside Ty Dolla Sign. Pretty awesome. I also love a song like, you know, when he like really like goes in like rapping and just kind of makes something hard. And you get that on Victor with All I Know. That, that's fun, too. I think what kind of like holds me back sometimes with Vic is 
some of like the like more personal rapping songs, a hard time connecting with him. I don't know why, because he's actually tell, telling them, talking about stuff, right? Like in this instance, he talked about, you know, um, some legal issues he's had, and despite the fact that he was you know, kind of being out in center with protests and things of that nature while having his own personal legal issues pending and things like that, probably the best example of this of all would be the song Blue Eyes, which is one of the lead singles where he it talks about um, his relationship with his own blackness and, and with society and you know feeling self-worth and confidence and things of that nature these are good messages these are like well thought out songs but i don't know like i have a hard time connecting with the songs themselves you know um and that's kind of held me back recently a song like south side story featuring common common vix chicago og of course but common's doing the meme thing on this, telling the stories, doing the poet thing, you know? And, like, I don't know, I just can't connect with Vic on it. Um, the Weeping Poets, featuring Jay Electronica, pretty good. I think Vic holds his own alongside Jay. Jay Electronica, I think he's getting more and more obtuse as the features come out. Like, it's really hard to grasp what he's actually saying sometimes. He I feel like he kind of is falling into, like, Eminem syndrome, where he just tries to give you a bunch of syllables or in his case give you a bunch of different languages in the verse and a bunch of different religious references whatever it might be from him i don't know if it's all like coming together anymore not not to mention some of the controversial things about him these days um not too sure um yeah let's see i mean track two victor like kind of like the mil- the melody at the end um Let's see. Uh, ooh, Swish, featuring g Easy and Chance the Rapper. Interesting song. This was a single. Um, more confirmation, of course, that Chance and Vic have long since buried the hatchet after some beef they had after coming up together. They've probably been most active and prolific as you know, kind of doing activist work and um, championing causes and things like that. You know, um, both of the, uh, Chance certainly hasn't been very musically active. Again, I'll get to that a little bit more. But like that's actually kind of a fun song. I think the verses are pretty nice on that. Like, like G Easy, who another person who has not been very active these days. The, the G Easy peak was long ago. It feels like right. A fun little line from him that I have to say ain't so much to narrow. It's Channel Vic and Gerald. Like that 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 did make me uh, chuckle a little bit. You know, um, let's see. I mean, Sunset on the Low Low End. You know. I think that's probably the best example of Vic like using auto tune and singing. I think some of the songs where Vic just like straight up, straight up sings and croons, like it's just not his strength. You know, like I guess he's gotten better at it marginally. I just don't really care for those songs though. Like when he like mixes in auto tune, mixes in singing, and then maybe actually gives you a rap verse still, like on Blessing, some chorus with a rap, a rap verse. That's probably the sweet spot, I would say, for this kind of song. Um, let's see. Oh, God, at the end here, 14 Days, Mr. Hudson. Back from the Dead. Um, that was not my bingo card. Let's leave it at that. Um, yeah. So, like, this long story short, not my favorite Vic album, but it's not, like, offensively bad or half-baked, like, something like 93 Punks. So it's, like, you know, whatever. Um, I think just in general, though, like, I, I talked about this when Mick Jenkins released, you know, about a month ago. And the Chicago, like, you know, jazz rap scene, I kind of, 
blew up, obviously, at the turn of the 2010s, with Chance the Rapper as the face of that scene. It's been really wild watching what's happened to that scene, right? Obviously, now Chicago runs through, you know, kind of full circle, I guess. You know, Little Dirk and Chicago Drill, things like that, G Herbo. Um, the jazz guys, you know, like obviously Chance, last album 2019, fallen off um, in the mainstream sense, in a critical sense. I'm waiting for the next album. I hope it's good. I hope it's a comeback, but we haven't gotten it yet, right? You know, Vic, Vic Jenkins, Oggs Wiley. I guess Saba is still critically interested, people interested in critically, you know, and No Name, I guess, given the recent album, given her outsized profile, probably one of the faces of this scene now, too. It just feels like it was so much more important, you know, five years ago than it is today. It's just not making as much noise anymore. I just, I, I mean, when it was happening, it was so exciting, right? All these artists and, you know, used to that a little bit, artists like Smino right, from the general area, general region, like, it really felt like one of the signature scenes in hip-hop, and it's just not right now. You know, maybe you could get there again, I don't know. Um, you know, we got No Name out, we got a Mick out, we just got a Vic Mensa album, like, it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of juice right there with this kind of music out of Chicago. It's interesting. If anything, like, all the stuff coming out of, like, Detroit and, like, Flint, you know, in terms of the Midwest music, that's probably more popping right now you know just a kind of interesting development i really didn't see this coming and i wonder if this would still be the case if the chance momentum didn't really just ride right off the rails the way it did so i think a lot is riding on what's next with chance because vic is attached to chance whether he likes it or not really his rock nation affiliation it's on the label putting out stuff on the label the Rock doesn't seem to invest in Vic. Vic doesn't seem to invest in The Rock. It is what it is. It seems like whatever. So I don't know. I'd love to know, like, how do you feel about Chicago rap these days? What do you think about? What do you think is has passed, etc.? Like, how you feeling? And about Vic, too. Like, what do you, how do you feel about Victor? Like, for me, again, like, it's an album that's pretty solid. Like, there's, like, some good moments on it. But I just don't know if there's a lot of, like, revisitable songs on it for me. But solid messaging from Vic, so I guess that counts for something. But let me know how'd you feel about Vic Mensa's Victor. Let me know. For more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Winning Time Season 2 on HBO, which we found out very recently is in fact also the series finale, the season finale, the final season of Winning Time. Yeah, um, didn't necessarily see that one coming going into Season 2. Although I get it after having watched season two. Evidently, the final scene in the season two finale was reshot in January. As HBO producers and executives and whatnot had kind of given the team a heads up that the ratings weren't really in the direction where renewal was happening. So they were able to insert a alternate final scene to give the series a little bit more closure. Yeah, Wing Time Season 2, you know, I, in a sense, I, I would call this a disappointment. It's not as strong as Season 1, broadly. On the other hand, I think the show was just entertaining and fun. Just, you know, it's it's very well cast. You know, Kareem and Magic. Yeah, they nailed those roles, and they did. Quincy Isaiah's Magic is very good. But I think the dramatic interests of the show left a little bit to be desired with Season 2. Season 2 also features some 
kind of strange time skips where we skip like 18 month periods kind of out of the blue at the time and the character development doesn't really follow suit with that that was a bit disappointing to me we spent a lot of time with the burgeoning relationship between cookie and magic primarily with these phone conversations in like in you know in personal rooms one-on-one phone conversations and it's like it's not a whole lot of tension with that because if you know the story of course you know that magic cookie do end up together but not for like another 10 years and i don't know it just kind of felt distracting i feel like season two had a lot of storylines thrown in there a lot of characters in the ensemble that had to be serviced and there just wasn't enough focus um on kind of developing what you did have a bit disappointing you know on, some, on one hand like there's stuff that's interesting right like, like paul westhead getting tanned and the, the rise of pat riley right pat riley the legend that he is today these are the humble beginnings of him as a coach you know this stuff with him and magic pretty good but i don't know i just found like the tension was a bit stale with this and you know winning time i think i just as a concept was so tantalizing season one felt like such a great foundation despite some of the controversy with jerry west and whatnot i don't really care about that but like i i wish this was a more succinct in getting through the showtime era and like getting us really into the heart of the celtics rivalry like we just kind of touched the surface of that and they they have since let on that season three would have been more focused on the lakers versus the celtics and Maybe the producers, the creative team, you know, um, Jeff Perlman, who wrote the book, is kind of inspiration, creative inspiration behind this. Like, maybe they got a little bit over their skis and spending a lot of time leading up to the Celtics stuff, besides getting into it. But, like, the premise of winning time so tantalizing, right? Whether it could have been a more succession style drama with Jerry Buss and his kids and who's running the team in the future of that. Whether we could skip eras with LA and make it, make it, few seasons about the Kobe Shaq Lakers like that would be so appealing we never got there we didn't get close to getting there you know it's a bit disappointing you know I think um it's interesting that Jerry Buss ended up being like the co-lead of the series alongside Magic um I think some of the tension with Buss a bit up and down even if I love John C. Riley performance um I think something like the Adam McKayisms with like the the film stock flare and the the changes in tone looking at the camera and stuff that's kind of like inconsistent throughout the course of the series i guess as mckay became a little bit less involved i would have loved if they kind of committed to that or at least found more consistency in whether they were going to do it or, at all or not i don't know um yeah like it's i i don't really care about the the accuracy of it. i know that's been a big sticking point with a lot of people but for me, I, I, ju- I just wish there was a little bit more focused on its core story. That way the characters could get a bit more fully realized. Like, it's definitely a weaker Kareem season in season two. And Magic feels like a he's in a similar place after that, as, as season one. You know, he's a place with the team, place with his future wife, place with how he feels in society, things like that. Like... There's so much to all this story, and it just, it just feels like the mix, the balance, which just wasn't quite right. So, yeah, as a result, the show got canceled. I mean, I remarked at the time that I didn't think season two was coming out at an especially pristine time. Of course, coming out during the strikes, lack of promotion is one thing, but it's coming out early August, 
ending in late September. Just kind of a weird window to have a prestige HBO Sunday night show, given that season one was early in the year release when it came out. So I don't want to say it got buried, but it, it didn't. It, I don't feel like the show got set up to succeed necessarily. And of course, as I've been saying, it didn't really help itself too much. So the ratings were cited as the chief reason why it didn't continue, which I guess makes sense given how we know about how Rumpo's Discovery is operating these days. Perry Mason was canceled after two seasons as well. It's kind of a similar thought. So that, that's two HBO hitters on the more expensive side of things as well and no longer continuing. I would love maybe a different creative team wanting to make the Kobe Shack show. Obviously, now it won't happen anytime soon, but that th- there's clearly something there. We know that. So maybe one day, maybe years down the line when LeBron's retired, you can do the Kobe Shaq era, then go into the uh, maybe the late Kobe post Shaq era, then go into the LeBron Anthony Davis era. You know, you have the bubble season, bubble championship. There's stuff there too. You know, Ray John Rondo on that team. He's a character. Can see see the board, right? We'll see. But yeah, um, kind of a unceremonious end to winning time, considering how strongly I felt about it after season one, and it just felt like it kind of came and went this time and became a bit of diminishing returns. So, kind of hang a lot of that on the creative team and having the priorities and the scripts not quite where they are, and just the lack of focus with the narrative hurt the show in the end. But still an enjoyable show, almost always through and through. So happy I watched it, of course. But let me know, how did you feel about Wing Time Season 2? What's your favorite moment of it? Um, were you also let down by it in comparison to Season 1? What would you have liked to see in a Season 3 in a future set of seasons? And for more HBO reviews, TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Bottoms, the new comedy film from Emma Seligman, starring Rachel Sennett and Ayo Itabiri. This film premiered back in South, back back in March, South by Southwest, came out the end of August, finally got to it. Uh, very exciting, because I think Bottoms is awesome, and Bottoms is kind of filling a void that we don't really have in movies right now. And also, of course, it's Emma Seligman's follow-up to Shiva Baby, which also starred Rachel Sennett, um, was the Rachel Sennett breakout role. And now you have Bottoms, which Senate co-wrote with Seligman. Really exciting piece of casting, of course, getting Ayo Idabiri in here after her huge breakout with FX's The Bear. Um, kind of giving you all the ingredients you want with an exciting movie. And I think what's so cool about Bottoms, which I think generally is very smart, funny, well-cast, great time. Bottoms is a high school comedy film. That doesn't sound like a special thing, but it actually is these days. We don't get these movies anymore. And when you do get something tangentially like this, it's more of a teen comedy. And it's usually the Netflix variety, like a For All the Boys I Love Before type thing. Bottoms is filling a different mold for a different audience. And it's doing that really well. Um, I, I, I think I really, really, really enjoyed it. You know, and I think Emma Seligman, of course, very exciting director because she, I believe she's in her late 20s now, but she's one of, if not the preeminent, like Gen Z filmmakers, right? You know, obviously there's only been so much time for Gen Z directors to make their name. And I think 
MSL admin, along with someone like a Cooper Rafe, I guess, they're, they're, they're the faces of Gen Z filmmakers in America right now. And that's really cool. And Rachel Sennett, obviously, has really been blowing up. You know, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies last year, The Idol this year. Really talented, comedic presence. I think she's really great in Bottoms as PJ. Sennett's really good at giving you, like, over the top, like extra uh, energy, and she can play the asshole well, which is what she does in this movie. Ayo Debiri, uh, you know, plays her friend uh, Josie. Ayo's so great, at, like reactions, right? So she can play off a big, big presence like Senate so well. So great piece of cast. Um, and PJ and Josie, they are uh, high school students, uh, you know, compatriot lesbian friends who concoct this scheme to have a after-school women's defense club, a fight club, basically, at school, and not to teach women to defend themselves. No, no, no. This is actually just a way for PJ and Josie to get laid, you know, lose their virginity, and attract some hot cheerleaders they have crushes on, and hopefully fuck them. Hilarious concept. And it's done really well. And the progression with this movie, too, where... The characters learn that this club has actually been supportive for its members and how they uh, feel about each other. Like the movie, I think approaches things like with a really like nice tact while still being funny. Um, I, I I think really there's a really spot on you know piece of writing where like there's um a moment in the gym when the club is meeting and PJ in a really, like, matter-of-fact, gruff way, just kind of blurts out, okay, who's been raped? Raise your hand. And, like, no one does anything. And then she says, uh, you know, when there's no response to that, she says, gray area stuff counts, too. And then every girl in the club raises their hand. And it's, like, one of those, like, damning things where it's, you know, you know what it means. And it's um, kind of speaks to, I think, how the rest of the movie goes, where, like, this is a bit of, like, a slapstick comedy, um, the humor, the, the montages, like there's stuff played for laps and stuff played excess, extensively over the top, but it's like presenting with this very misogynistic, um, macho high school center around this football team. And you have this club playing off of that and, and, you know, PJ and Josie feeling like complete outsiders. It's very interesting. I think how it's structured where on one hand you have, the high school comedy tropes, the high school comedy structure. And it's following that. It's committed to that. It doesn't really break that mold too much. But because this movie is, so I think, so well-casted, has some really great writing. Um, it's the kind of moments of like, like really great lines. Like There's an offhand like second-wave feminism joke that's hilarious. Black Republican joke as well. Um, you have these com- this committed writing and this excellent casting that really fits the script well. It just kind of elevates like that high school comedy mold, you know, and there, it, things are just satisfying. Like you, you can kind of predict the beats, but like the the, the ending montage against <laughs> the uh, rival football team, as it were, um, you could compare it to the Barbie montage if you wanted to, you know, with the Kens. Pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of other casting, Ruby Cruz is great as Hazel. Um, someone else in the club who PJ and Josie know. Um, Ruby Cruz kind of made her name on TV. It's her first movie role. She's really excellent in this, I have to say. Um, 
Havana Rose Lou, I wasn't too familiar with. She's one of the cheerleaders. She's pretty good. And then Kaya Gerber is uh, the other cheerleader. And you know, I think Kaya Gerber obviously a bit more famous, not necessarily famous for acting, but pretty solid in this role, honestly. Plays it well. You know, has some good comedic moments. Um, Dagmir Dugmanicic has a very small role as um, Hazel's mom, but <laughs> Marshawn Lynch is really awesome as uh, one of the teachers who ends up sponsoring the club. And Marshawn Lynch is proving that he has excellent comedic timing, just a really funny presence as an actor. And his character is like so, f- so, so, f- I think, fully realized as this man, obviously, who is so reactionary to what he's seeing with the club and what he's seeing with the women around him based on the tenor of the ongoing divorce his character is going through off screen. Uh, quite enjoyable for sure. Um, yeah, I think just stay for script, stay for Senate's impulsive performance. I was reactions, as I said, um, I think just kind of getting like a modern set film it's funny because it doesn't really ground itself in any like one time but it still feels modern in terms of the perspectives the movie is presenting so yeah i i I think bottoms is you know it's had a pretty solid box office with like a limited release and you know comedies have a hard time breaking through these days there's certainly so much to bottoms that you hope this would find a lot of success on vod and streaming in the you know months and years to come and definitely continues that upward trajectory for Emma Seligman for sure great showing for Io Udabiri Rachel Sennett obviously Io and Rachel both in their late 20s but honestly pretty passable as high school students not sure how much longer they can pull that off Um, obviously this happens all the time think of Emma Stone Andrew Garfield in Spider-Man for example playing high school kids we've seen this before we'll see it again it's fine Um, it's good enough and yeah, I think uh, Bomb's pretty pretty good time, you know? Um, one of the best comedies of the year, I would say. But yeah, let me know. How'd you feel about Bottoms? How would you rate it against Shiva Baby? I would have to say, I think Shiva Baby is uh, my favorite film of Seligman's thus far, just because that was something that was so, I think, kind of arresting and like the awkwardness and the tension that it had, where Bottoms has a bit more conventional nature to it. So they have very different appeals and Bombs is probably more rewatchable, but I really like Sheep Baby as well. But Seligman, great director. How did you feel about Bombs in comparison to Sheep Baby on its own? The casting, the acting, etc. How did you feel about it? Let me know. And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Dumb Money, the new film from Craig Gillespie about the GameStop stock saga from early 2021. This is adapted from a book from Ben Mesrich, which should ring a bell because, of course, his books were adapted into 21 about the MIT Blackjack students and, of course, most famously, The Social Network from David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin. Now he's now we're back with Dumb Money. This is a book that, by the way, he released in late 2021. It came out very fast. I can't speak to how good the book is. But anyway, this was the inspiration for the movie and there was there was a lot of movies like docs in development about this story of course this is the first feature film to come out and most likely the only one as well um there's a separate film with no centineo attached that's probably not happening anymore but dumb money has a 
excellent cast, which I think is one of the best selling points about this film. Most famously in the lead role, you have Paul Dano as Keith Gill, a.k.a. Roaring Kitty, a.k.a. D-Fucking-Value, one of the key people behind the momentum at Wall Street Bets in uh, late 2020 into early 2021, which catapulted GameStop and the whole meme stock saga. His brother, Kevin, is played by Pete Davidson. And then, let's see, we have on the Wall Street side of things, you have Nick Offerman playing Ken Griffin over at Citadel, one of the big hedge funds. You have uh, Seth Rogen as Gabe Plotkin at Melvin Capital. This is the hedge fund that eventually gets defeated, basically, by the GameStop short squeeze. And also Vincent D'Onofrio as Steve Cohen, the, of course, now owner of the Mets, but also, of course, the big-time uh, hedge fund manager at uh, Point72. And then on the you know the good guy's side, right, just the lowly uh, GameStop investor, you have America Ferreira as this uh, single mom and nurse. You have Anthony Ramos as a GameStop employee. You have Mahala Harold and Talia Ryder as college students. And uh, we also have Shalene Woodley as Keith Gill's wife and uh, Sebastian Stan as Vlad Tenev, one of the co-founders of Robinhood, the stock trading app. So big cast all around. And Owen Dandy Hahn as Anthony Ramos is a manager at GameStop. Big cast all around. And definitely a big selling point. It's that that I think really lifts the movie up. And this is, I think, really good example of the continuing like docufiction trend that we've got recently, right? Lots of um kind of business biopics have been really big right now with like Blackberry earlier this year, and then of course on the TV front stuff like We Crashed and the Dropout. This has been a really, I think, hot space for developing things. And the GameStop saga is obviously ripe for something like this. It's inherently um, interesting. And what's so great about Dumb Money, um, and credit to Gillespie for this, is that the movie actually comes across just as a broad, like, entertainment-style film and has some, like, thriller, like, tension-laden aspects to it which is, I think, easier said than done because this is a movie where people are looking at their screens all the time, right? Looking at the Robin Hood screens, watching the GameStop stock price go up and down, right? And on the other side, the Wall Street guys looking at their Bloomberg terminals, watching the stock price go up and down and seeing their um, short uh, interest uh, fuck over their you know portfolios overall and things like that, right? Not inherently cinematic, but the movie is, I think, written in a pretty conventional way, it's acted well, and just told in a good way that it, I think, brings the audience members through. And I think what's how this is done, of course, is by centering the film around Dano as Keith Gill, where the populist nature that fueled a big aspect of the Memestop saga with GameStop and also AMC, of course, that is inherently a you know, for the people type movement. And this story of the little guy actually striking back against the big bad wolf, in this case, of course, the hedge funds that run Wall Street and the stock market, that is, I think, appealing to many people, right? Of course, due to the proximity of in time that we are to this, I think there's plenty of people that participated in the uh, meme stop saga that will have some interest in it. Um, 
definitely remember that time well. Obviously, it was still during the you know heavy pandemic days, so um, I, I remember it well for sure. And I, I thought the movie was just really engrossing. You know, I think it does a pretty solid job of telling the story. It's, there's probably no reason to revisit the story with the movie after we got this one. You know, it's not perfect in the sense that it kind of brushes over. I think some of the negative sides of what happened with the meme stop saga, where most of our characters that were following the movement, most of them sold and made, made profits and, and did great for themselves. Right. But like, that's not necessarily the case overall. And that's not really like told by the movie that a lot of people did not win with this um, in the end, despite how it went. Right. It doesn't really acknowledge that there were many grifters and pumpers and shady figures that really popped up around this time, especially as the GameStop uh, saga continued with GameStop after GameStop with other stocks. You know, that's not really acknowledged all that much either. So it's not the full story, but it's like a good and I think a good enough story kind of grounding itself or like the, the triumphant moment, I guess, would be um, leading up to the congressional testimony that Gil gave as well as um, Plotkin and uh, Ken Griffin and uh, seeing Dano give the speech and, you know, kind of ending it, you know, triumphantly with, I just like the stock. Um, like that, that's a moment that like really hits. Like we really built itself up to that and it feels fulfilling. You know, I think um, of all like the extended cast, I thought Ramos was pretty fun and he does, I think, a great job of being a part of, how the movie feels like 2021. He's, he's working at GameStop, masking, right? It actually feels like a pandemic movie. Also, um, he's busting out the Megan Thee Stallion Savage, you know, TikTok dance. Again, very 2020, very 2021. Um, he's great doing that, and I think that's just a fun way to give the movie a sense of place and time. Uh, Pete Davidson as Kevin keith gill's brother man this is a great use of pete davidson the classic you know dirtbag bro that he knows how to play he's so funny he's he's great playing off dano dano giving you um one of his more kind-hearted performances obviously we know dano can get out there at times but dano is a great you know i think vehicle for this story where he i think brings a lot of i think heart to keith gill and his motivations behind what he's doing Obviously, there's a lot of mystery behind Keith Gill. The movie, of course, concludes with what's actually true, where no one really knows what happened. No one really knows if he actually did sell his shares or not, one at the high, etc. But Dano, I think, does a good job of kind of propelling the plot. Um, Shailene, she's solid in the movie, but it's really just the wife character. You know, not the not the strongest per, uh, role, for sure. Um, Offerman, D'Onofrio, good, but barely in it. It's really centered on the Wall Street side. It's really centered with Seth Rogen uh, as Plotkin. And a solid, serious role from Rogen. You know, he's kind of good at looking stressed, basically. Um, Stan as Vlad Tenev, one of the villains of the story, of course. Co-founder of Robinhood, controversially uh, pauses buying of GameStop stock on the app after a conversation with Ken Griffin in Citadel the night before. Um, you know, I, I like how the movie also intersperses real life um, news footage from television. 
in social media. You see TikTok clips, you see YouTube videos, you see real stuff interspersed in. It's definitely like a multi-screen type movie. That's all done pretty well. And they go really hard at, you know, the, the villains, quote unquote. And I would have loved this movie to actually do more with its ending beyond all the, the um, text cards at the end where it concludes that there were investigations in the Citadel, investigations in the Robin Hood, and no, no charges were brought against anyone. No wrongdoing was found, even though there was clearly some shady things that happened during this time in early 2021. I would have loved that to like be hammered home a little bit more, just like I would have loved to see some of the downsides to what happened to normal people during this thing as well. So not perfect in its encapsulation of the entire story and the political movements that were around the story but uh i think for what it is again broadly entertaining it's a good job of telling the broad strokes of the story and it's lifted up by the great cast that it has and i think if you were a participant in the meme stop meme stock saga in any way it'll probably be pretty satisfying watch because it's on your side at the end of the day as it should be so i like dumb money i thought it was really fun and yeah, um, if you'd like the stock, let me know. How'd you feel about Dumb Money? Uh, is it what you want this movie to be? How'd you compare it to recent docufiction films? You know, I think as a movie, Blackberry from this year, definitely the strongest of his stuff we've gotten in a while. But Dumb Money, to his credit, very entertaining. So let me know how you feel about it. And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, so that's going to do for the pod this week. Next week is also looking on the lighter end, but probably the last time I'm going to say that for a while. Of course, we have the Doja Cat album. Very excited about that. Her fourth album. Excited to get into that, of course, after Paint the Town Red. You know, went number one. Great song. Also, Sex Education, season four, the final season on Netflix. Can't wait to get to that. Then we'll catch up on uh, two films that I uh, missed this past week. A Haunting in Venice, the latest Kenneth Branagh, Agatha Christie movie, and Pablo Lorraine's El Conde on Netflix. So make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com says Nostalgia Pod. Linktree.com slash Nostalgia Pod. See the links below. Get all that stuff. Best of 2023 Spotify playlist. Rate, review. You know the drill. And I'll see you next week. Yeah.